Blog Talk Radio. Congress to make, you know, 
to, to, to ease up on these immigration laws and, you know, make it a little bit more comfortable for those who are undocumented. So um, let's, let's, let's be aware of that. Um, but me and Jerome are going to get in more as we go along on this particular subject. I also want to touch very briefly before I go on on this. In Belize, you know, the, uh, the government of Belize that's fighting, um, that's fighting uh, big year on, you know, in the area of land. Nigel Petir happens to be a friend of mine. I had him on on this radio uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, they, they were issuing an injunction to cease and desist. Don't plant or don't uh, do anything along the buffer zone. Well, I don't even know why they call it a buffer zone because a buffer zone essentially is along the highway where the government says, that, okay, we want to leave space for um, defer, for future development or expansion of the road or infrastructure. I get that. But in, in the interim, there's, no, there's nothing strategic about the uh, buffer zone. I, wa- I was in Belize recently, and I saw in the village of Camalote and in the village of um, the La Democracia and those different areas where they're expanding the, um, the road in the village of um, uh, Ontario, where they're expanding the road. And, and it, it, it's, not a logical, it's not a logistical nightmare. It's not, a logis- it's not, it's not uh, um, as far as uh, getting there to do it. it it's easy because it, for the most part, the George Price Highway is between Bawapan and all the way to San Ignacio. It, it's, it's inhabited, but it's not to the point where you have dwellings right on the side of the road that would prohibit expansion and development of the, in the future. And moreover, when I was a kid, I can recall in the village of Esperanza, when, the, when they were trying to bring electricity further into that village, the, go, the government just appropriated land in the name of, uh, 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 in the name of um, progress, eminent domain, they call it, and start in, in, erecting the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the power lines right there on the road. So, I mean, you know, they took you know they took back some land. They asked the people to move in their property some back from the road a little bit, and so it was it wasn't even like a um, without any hassle. So I, I'm trying to figure out what exactly is it that the government of Belize, led by Mr. Barra, is trying to do in, in their resistance to um to big year down in, in Harmonyville, just to, you know just before you get to Belmopani, the area where Harmonyville is, and they don't want them to do anything with in this so-called. But for Zoom, they want to plant corn. The government tell them no, they can't do it. Um, I see no compelling reason for, for, for other than outright oppression for them to be doing this. Um, secondly, U.S. Capital down south, big oil that they started with, also received an injunction to cease and desist from an oil exploration. They ignored it and continued to to, to explore. Uh, even though the Mayas was you know was outraged, they said, oh well, we already have some costs. We already committed. Um, Millions of dollars into this. Well, Big Air had bought their car and stuff. So, I mean, the whole thing is ludicrous, and I don't see why you know the government would want a confrontation with these, with with, with you know with the working class, Belizeans down south. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, in Harmonyville, led by Nigel Petillo and others. And that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. But in 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 the meantime, let me introduce uh, Jerome Strong. Are you on? Yes, I am. Good, good on. Um, um, I have on, my, on the line Dr. Jerome Stein, and um, you know, um, and we're going to be discussing this very, very, very compelling issue of immigration this morning. And um, uh, you know, like I said, Dr. Strawn is one of the leading experts in 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 that field, in in exploring and discussing, in exploring in in terms of research, and you know, and exploration when it comes to uh, uh, migration issues as it relates to Belize and the diaspora. Um, 
Dr. Jerome, what do you think? I know based on your um, I've men, I've read many many articles that you've written, and you know I've read your dissertation also. And what do you think is, you know, because taking off from what Richard Harson and I were discussing last, uh, I think last week, what do you think of some of the um, the what are you think is okay? And I, I don't want to make it too broad. I want to make it specific. But as far as Belizeans and migration, what seems to be the compelling issue in your mind? Well, I think, I mean, there are a lot of different issues. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say thanks for uh, inviting me to your show. Um, I think right now, uh, as uh, Richard had mentioned, um, uh, there are many uh, Belizeans aren't coming to the United States in the way that they did up until the mid-1990s. And certainly we've known that there have been a change of the uh, immigration laws, um, uh, you know, in the United States, and certainly the economic uh, economic conditions have changed in this uh, in this country. Uh, we still have the issue in terms of undocumented migration, um, uh, in ter- as one of the key issues. But it's kind of under the surface. Uh, we quite often don't speak about it as often because people assume that sort of in in Creole we say most people are straight. You know, but there is still a significant number of Belizeans in the United States uh, that are not uh, that are still undocumented. So that's one of the issues that plague our community. Uh, another issue, uh, and we have a tendency to overlook this, is that um, in terms of socioeconomic mobility, and uh, Richard touched on this, the extent to which Belizeans are experiencing some degree of mobility. Um, uh, in the United States, and certainly a lot of people have done really well um, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Uh, they've experienced, they're now professionals, um, and they've experienced a great degree of mobility. But we also have a large segment of our community that are struggling um, because some lack the skills, some also are in a labor market in which they have to compete with other immigrants. Um, so we have a tendency to say to think that because people are in the United States, they'll automatically succeed, and they're experiencing some challenges. I think one of the other areas that we haven't really uh, looked into um, is actually the issue of the second generation or the third generation of Belizeans. To what extent are they faring well in this economy? And certainly they face a lot of the issues that uh, uh, many uh, people, Native Americans, uh, uh, face. Um, You know, you have a lot of recent college graduates, right? We've had graduations left and right in the last week or so, and they'll face some of the same challenges in terms of employment, in terms of getting uh, their foot in the door, where uh, uh, sort of in their own occupations and being able to have some sort of being occupations that they can move up the ladder. Right, so that's one of the areas, kind of with some regret, that I haven't really uh, touched on this area a lot in the past. You know, so that's the one of the other areas that we have to focus on. Of course, Richard also looked at the the extent of self-employment. Right, and within whenever there's a economic conditions or uh, there are certain uh, economic conditions in the United States, people often think that uh, self-employment or entrepreneurship is the route to go. 
And certainly we know that uh, a large, uh, only a small percentage of Belizeans in the United States are self-employed, are entrepreneurs, and certainly that needs to increase. Uh, we do have, I, I remember in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, there was sort of a flourishing of the number of people who started their own businesses. And to a large extent, they were sort of a, a niche business, right? Uh, people, whether they're travel agents, uh, whether they're sort of dealing with insurance, uh, uh, issue uh, sort of businesses that cater to the immigrant community, they were able to get their start. Um, and, and from there on, they moved uh, onwards. They were able to sort of uh, buy sort of property and branch out into other types of uh, businesses, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Recently, of course, we've been talking about the issue of transnationalism and uh, sort of the dual citizenship issue, right? Uh, the issue of uh, uh, voting rights, the issue to the extent to which Belizeans abroad can become a part of uh, the not the politics of Belize and a part of the development of the country, and the extent to which the government of the day is making overtures to that community to be a part of the development of the country, right? Uh, I think there's a general attitude in Belize that, you know, uh, people are here, they try to make it, and then they sort of the sort of the Arnold Petter story of the Dr. Grant story, right? That they'll they'll go down there with their resources and they'll start things, right? Uh, and so on. And uh, a little sort of outreach is done on the part of the government. Um, and there are many, there are thousands of Belizeans now that are professionals, and there's not been the sort of outreach that should have occurred. And quite often, uh, the uh, uh, it becomes politicized. Right, uh, people wonder, well, where on the political sort of spectrum are people located? Right, uh, so those are some of the challenges that I think, in terms of economic mobility, uh, transnationalism, and in terms of looking at the second generation, uh, our third generation, and see how they are faring uh, uh, in the United States because they are important. I mean, we certainly have had the. Uh, you know, a couple of days ago, I was talking to someone that was uh, in terms of whether we should counsel as Belizean Americans, and that's a tricky issue. I think there are some that we consider more Belizean, uh, and then there are others. We have questions about whether they should be considered a part of the Belizean American population in the United States. Nevertheless, what I found out is there is a yearning on many uh, on their part. I remember a lady from, she actually just graduated from the University of Michigan, and her father, her mother is uh, Belizean, and it seems that she never spoke to her a lot about Belize, but there is a desire on her part to know a lot about the country. And now we have the Internet, we have Facebook, and this is a way for many of these people to get in contact with other Belizeans, to feel like their sense of a, a sense of common belonging, a sense of community uh, with other people of Belizean ancestry in the United States. And as I'd mentioned also, uh, we uh, we've sort of seen the debate on, unfold in the last couple of years about um, immigration, right? And quite often, whenever there are these rallies, uh, we see just Latin faces in the rally. Right, and people say, "Well, where are the Belizeans?" I remember a friend of mine, Bilal Morris, 
uh, he spoke to the congresswoman for the area in which I live, and she was saying that where the Belizeans, when there are issues of uh, immigration that comes up, right, and we quite often are sort of an invisible population. In some ways, there's great visibility, right? We have the restaurants and so on. Everybody knows Belizeans in a place like Los Angeles. But then there is a certain amount of invisibility, much like uh, Filipino immigrants, right, uh, uh, in the sense that we are not there as a sort of a lobbying group at City Hall in terms of politics, uh, in terms of a, as a voting block, uh, and so on. So it's an interesting thing. And also I think we, are, we should re- sort of discuss the comparing communities, comparing Los Angeles, with Los, uh, with Chicago, comparing Los Angeles with uh, New York, comparing Los Angeles with Miami, and see whether, uh, to some extent, these communities uh, have a greatest have a greater sense of community, right? They have the celebrations and so on, than say Los Angeles and so on. I know uh, that in a place like Chicago, uh, over the last ten years, there's been a great effort to sort of restart a sense of community. Right, but then there's a sense, that sense of community is lacking in other areas, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we could go into that um, at some point because I noticed that there's sort of a continuum where uh, people, in terms of a sense of community. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I, I I think that um that you touch on and Richard kind of mentioned it too is to the to the extent of how the the migration has has um impacted Belize's development. For example, Richard uh, had um, maintained that he believed that, um, for the most part, that, uh, that Belizean migration has slowed down. For mm-hmm. many, you know, there's a lot, a lot of attendant factors why that has occurred. But um, what do you think are some of the attendant factors to, to, to that, that has caused Belizean um, to, you know, for, for lack of a better word, to stop coming, stop coming to states then in, in, in mm-hmm. such overwhelming numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's go back to the early 70s. Uh, you had when this migration stream, it's sort of a uh, significant migration wave occurred. Um, we Quite often there are some people in Belize try to focus on Hurricane Hattie, but uh, one of the play, uh, <laughs> sort of the time that we should focus on is the late 60s, early 70s. This was a time, I mean, in sort of migration theories, right, uh, we often speak about push and pull factors. This was a time when the jobs were plentiful in America, uh, when Belizeans might not be facing as much competition from, say, the uh, Mexican immigrant population, especially in blue-collar jobs. Um, There's also where the push factor is concerned. Um, Belizeans, I mean, a lot of people are experiencing mobility because I think after, like, 19... The late 60s, early 70s, 70s, things started really improving for Belizeans at home. Nevertheless, you had, for instance, policemen, teachers, each year, like in the case of teachers, my mom was a teacher, and each year when school closed, uh, people said, well, you know what, we don't think this one is going to come back, this, this other person is not going to come back, and they didn't. Uh, they remained in the United States quite often. They didn't sort of travel sort of the Mexico route, what we call true to back. They came here and visitors visas and they overstayed their time. But although they were a teacher in Belize, they were able to come here and get a job. 
right? Uh, quite often, they never got the same teaching job, right, because they need uh, – this is a credentialing society, right? They started teaching at a, in the Catholic uh, schools, uh, the, the, the uh, parochial schools, and mm-hmm. then they sort of branched out. But one of the things they felt like uh, they were able to recoup their status in the United States, right? After sort of doing a menial job um, for a couple of years, they felt like they would experience a certain amount of mobility. And uh, they had an advantage, right? Uh, they, one of those advantages, what they had, it was English language uh, skills. Uh, we kind of uh, overlooked that at times, right? Uh, other Central American immigrants don't have English language skills. In some cases, Belizeans were bi- are bilingual, so they were able to use their Spanish language ability as well. Um, so people were leaving, whether they're civil servants, whether they're teachers, uh, people who are professionals, or people who are blue-collar, right, and, and, and sort their fortunes in the United States, and there were jobs that they could get. Uh, quite often people told me, I remember Mr. Clifford Palacio, he once told me that it was, it was uh, in, the ni- in 1971 when he came here, it was like, you know what, tomorrow morning you could go out there and find a job. And if you don't like this job after working this job for a couple of weeks, if you don't like this job, then you could go across the street and get another job. Now, he was a teacher in Belize, but um, I think some of the initial jobs that he worked uh, was as insurance salesman, as in factories and so on. And that was the route. The same thing with uh, policemen. I remember the story of one policeman who sort of someone saw him in a, in a hospital, right? And he was like an inspector of police in, in Belize. And he was like an orderly uh, in a hospital in Chicago. And someone looked at him and was like, what is he doing that? You know, why is he doing this kind of job, right? Uh, because it certainly, it seemed like he, he was suffering status inconsistency, right? He certainly wasn't doing the type of job that he had at home. Uh, but eventually, by the late uh, uh, by late 80s, early 90s, the salaries of Belizeans start improving at home. And also people sort of looked at, say, well, why come to the United States? Why uh, compete for jobs and then end up with a job uh, that I might not like and might not earn me a lot of money, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, instead just stay in Belize. And also it's the status component of you might not earn as much in Belize, but you have a certain status, right? Uh, coming to the United States, uh, you have to recoup your status, right? Some immigrants don't mind doing that. I mean, Korean immigrants, many of them were engineers and teachers and so on, and they end up being uh, self-employed in the United States because they lack English language ability. But there was the hope on their part that their children would succeed, that their children would end up at these fabulous universities um, and, and so on. So they were essentially giving their children an opportunity. Eventually, as I've stated, the salaries improved back home, the job market became tighter in the United States, and people sort of decided that, you know what, I'll stay in Belize, I get a whole month off, <laughs> right? It's for a lot of us in the United States, it's kind of unusual, right, to get the two weeks off vacation and Belizeans get a month off, right? And they decided to just come and visit relatives every year and then go back. Now, it's likely that some of these people uh, will, after retirement, they will return, uh, they will come to the United States. 
I mean, there's some strange things happening in terms of uh, our Belizeans coming here. You have people who came here at the prime of their life, spent all their working life here. They sent for their parents. I know one family in particular. They went back home and their parents stayed here, right? Or you have people uh, such as my older brother. He spent his working life in Belize uh, as a custom uh, assistant to, to controller custom, and why he didn't become the controller custom is, is a political issue mm-hmm. that I'll probably but discuss Jerome, another but, time. But, uh, let, me, let me interject here for a minute because um, in terms of uh, you said people come here, like for example you and I, we came here essentially at the, at the prime of our life, teenagers, you say. Mm-hmm. So we're an example of that particular thing there, you know, then live here all our life, you know, essentially. Um, but we still had Belizean roots, you know, as children, you know, <laughs> high school and so, so forth, but we came here essentially at the prime of our manhood. Um, but I want to mm-hmm. ask you, what did, in terms of status, you know, could you talk about uh, the Garifuna versus the Creole, yeah, as far as mm-hmm. ethnicity and status in the United States, and how that, how they have been able to, 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 uh, how they have been able to, mm-hmm. uh, to get, you know, to get into the fabric of, um, of, of American mm-hmm. society, from a status mm-hmm. standpoint. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I looked at in my dissertation is the extent to which our certain characteristics affected the way in which we are integrated into the United States economically and are socially. Um, and I quite often compared the Garifuna and Creole uh, communities uh, population because of how the dynamics within these communities are. Certainly, uh, the Garifuna community was part of the larger Belizean community, but there's also uh, a sense that the Garifuna community had a sort of a parallel sense of community in the United States. Uh, We all know in Los Angeles, although these uh, settlement patterns have changed, that in the up until, I would say, late 80s, uh, you know, people often referred to as the Garifuna east side, east of the... uh, the Harbor Freeway, right? And then they had sort of on the west side, west of the harbor, west of USC, right? I um, mean, there are certain settlement patterns. Those settlement patterns started in the 19, uh, early 1960s. But I'll give you an example of how the communities differ, right? Uh, in terms of communal resources, right? Uh, where to go, you know, in order to get information for a job? Where to go to get information um, uh, 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 you know, to sort of integrate into the community. I'll try to choose my words uh, carefully in this case because one aspect concern undocumented migration. Uh, a lot of Belizeans who came here and they were undocumented in the old days, uh, they were able to, I call it alternative documentation, right? Uh, in the old days they could go into a DMV. There was a DMV by Figueroa and uh, what was then Santa Barbara, now it's King uh, Boulevard, and uh, whether it's Social Security or whatever. And people knew, sort of, they had uh, ethnic networks to say, oh, you go so-and-so on this person, I'll give you this, right? Or you go, you go to Johnny, I tell you they have a job, uh, you know, they have a job at such-and-such a plant or whatever. So... Within the Garifuna community, there were sort of these, there were ethnic resources that people can draw on, right? Uh, and they were able to use that more effectively. 
in the case of uh, uh, um, sort of, uh, and there were a lot of class distinctions, one of the things that we leave out a lot is the extent to which there is social class amongst Belizeans, right? Uh, within the Creole community, you had class divisions. You had regional divisions, whether you were from Boom or whether you are from Belize City, right? But in the case of Creoles, the, the, the sort of the resources, the sort of the information, social in relation to social capital, was absent or people held on to the information that they know that they had, that they knew other people could use to get along or to make it in the United States. It was, I don't want to really say it's a kind of the classic crab in a barrel mentality, but uh, people didn't pass on the information. Some did, but others didn't. It's like, you know what, I don't want to tell too many people or whatever. But we had in the Garifuna community, we had sort of uh, communal resources. People can go to such and such a person to know about this or know about that you know, to get help in terms of their their immigration status, to get help in terms of finding employment, right, in the Creole community. Although people had uh, uh, social networks, um, it, it wasn't effective quite often, right, in, in getting mm. jobs. Then there was other uh, how we looked at in terms of certain occupations, right? Uh, certainly we have... Uh, during the Vietnam War, right, uh, a lot of Belizeans served, right, in that war. And after they came out, uh, uh, some, you know, if they were not citizens, they were able to rec- regularize their status and become U.S. citizens through that path. But you know, uh, after that, you had sort of a difference where uh, there are a greater percentage of uh, a, a group of immigrants saw uh, um sort of a service, military service, not just for the purpose of uh, expedited citizenship, but in general in terms of mobility, they saw uh, 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 sort of military service as a path to economic success, as something prestigious in terms of being able to succeed and so on. You still had Creoles joining the military, but the percentage of Garifuna Belizeans uh, 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 going in the military was high. The other thing, too, of course, is that in terms of educational attainment, right, uh, we often look at, within, even within the African-American community, right, you have uh, women, uh, African-American women, uh, going to college, uh, uh, pursuing an education at a greater rate than African-American men. Right? Well, if you look at the Belizean community, you know, comparing uh, the Garifuna and the Creoles, uh, you found uh, many Creole uh, Garifuna parents. And, you know, even the first generation saw education as a, as a path to uh, our mobility uh, and doggedly pursued but, but, but education. Does you, do you think that um, the Garifuna, say, versus the Mestizo, uh, I follow those groups, the Mestizo, mm-hmm. and I don't want to create divisions because I'm just, I'm, we just, since we examined mm-hmm. the topic of migration, because I know you told me mm-hmm. that when you went to Chicago, there's a huge Latin uh, um, believe mm-hmm. in the Latin community from Cayo and those different areas or mm-hmm. in Chicago of all places. But the, the, my my question is, when you if we observe the you know, mestizo say uh, versus Garifuna Creole, who is having a harder, or easier time assimilating into into American popular culture, into American mm-hmm. the American dream, if you will? I think they. All communities have a difficult time, but you have to do further analysis and look at 
class, you have to look at immigration status, you have to look at social class. Certainly you have the uh, uh, people who are middle class status. Uh, they are able to pursue education and they were able to get jobs and then their kids start fearing better. You also have to look at uh, patterns of settlement. Where do these people settle? Um, uh, do they settle in Van Nuys or do they settle in Santa Monica or do they settle in Palmdale? And uh, is there an availability of jobs in those areas? Do they have to compete with other immigrant communities? What types of jobs do they do? Um, there are certain, for instance, I think, and this is anecdotal, I think the, the extent to which many uh, 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 mestizos are able to use sort of their the English and Spanish language ability. I mean, certainly there are many Belizean, black Belizeans who also speak Spanish to varying degrees. But that has been to their advantage. Also, as the Latin population increased, right, you have sort of, um, in terms of the hiring practices of employers, they have had certain advantages, right? And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, he lives in Downey, and his daughter was born here, and uh, she applied for a job at, I think it's a, a, a one of those, you know, places that sell cars. And she said then the, they cater pr primarily to Latinos. And she said, well, you know, I don't really speak that much Spanish. You know, and they said, no, that, that's okay, right? Uh -huh. And you have a sense in terms of her, they wanting her to, to, to work that job is because she looked Latino. She looked Latina, I'm sorry, right? Uh, would, would someone who was a uh, Belizean second generation, black Belizean, uh, you know, been given that same opportunity, right, and so on. Uh, so there are some areas in which the uh, 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 mestizos have uh, uh, an advantage, where, especially in the rising Latino population. Now, this might not have been true, in the early 70s, uh, when sort of um, the, the Latin population was a lot smaller, um, there was sort of great enforcement of the immigration law or looking at the foreignness, for people who look foreign or they look Spanish, so they're, they're you know, Mexican, so the immigration status would have been questioned, right? Uh, you don't really have that today. And so they have, they have benefited um, in, in, in many ways. Um, but they also have challenges, of course, you know, in terms of being stuck in certain types of jobs. One of the jobs that a large percentage of Belizeans still do is uh, domestic work, right? Uh, many uh, Afro-Black uh, Belizeans have been able to move from sort of domestic work child care into elderly care, right? Um, and you still have a large percentage of uh, Latin Belizeans who are, who are uh, in doing domestic, uh, domestic work and child care, right? So that, that's one area. But it all—it depends on a lot of factors. Like I said, uh, time of arrival. Will they arrive in the 70s? Will they arrive in the 80s or 90s? Uh, social class. Um, there's also the the characteristics of the person. Do they have human capital? To what extent? And also the extent to which what was their first job? Right. Um, one of the things is we have a lot of graduates coming out of college today is that some of them will land that good first job, and within 10 years they'll experience significant mobility occupationally, right? 
you know, some of these kids, whether they have a liberal arts degree, and, you know, and so forth, and they might not be struggle with unemployment, and then after six months or a year, they get a job working at Starbucks. What would their sort of their occupational trajectory be ten years from now? I think it's the same thing with a lot of Belizeans. Many have were able to come here and get good jobs, and then their occupational trajectory looked different. The ones who sort of stayed at stable uh, jobs, like, for instance, working. I used to work for Department of Social Services uh, back in the old days. Uh, those jobs, there's not a lot of layoffs, and the pay is good, and they experience a great degree of mobility. People who join the military, right, that's not something for a lot of, for a lot of people. I stayed, I was in the Army for three years, and I did three years in active. Uh, some people stayed the whole 20 and they're retired, right? Uh, but they have experienced a certain degree of mobility doing that 20 years, right? So it looks different for a, a lot of different uh, uh, people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and class, yeah I, I imagine, you know, there's a lot of attendant variables to the mobility. But see, you know, what I was talking to Richard Harrison last week, one of the things that we touch upon as far as immigration is that um, you know, we you know we we don't have a comprehensive. You're one of the few individuals because he referred to your research that you did in your dissertation for your PhD from USC that um regarding the estimation of the numbers of Belizeans that um that live here that lives in 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 the diaspora. Also, the type of educational the type of education that they have, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, doctors, lawyers, engineers, so forth, social mm-hmm. scientists, etc. You know. Um, you know, this this is something that um that we are struggling with as as a community, and it's not just like I said before, it's not just the Belizeans living in the United States that have a hard time compiling data. Some are more mm-hmm. efficient than others, but we certainly are lagging behind in compile in compiling mm-hmm. what he said a database that we can access to say, okay, this is exactly what we have, or or at least a good estimation of the kind mm-hmm. of um of the kind of uh, resources that we have available that the diaspora mm-hmm. can share with, the, with, with, with Belize. So what I want, you know, because say, for example, like I have, you know, like someone might say, well, who, are, who has more in terms of educational mobility? Would it be the Garfuna or the Creole mm-hmm. or the, or the Latinos mm-hmm. that come from Belize, you know, the, the Mestizos? So, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't really know for a fact, correct? I mean, who, mm-hmm. in, as far as uh, educational mobility, whether it's Garfuna, mm-hmm. Creole, or, or Mestizo that has migrated mm-hmm. from, from Belize. So that's something yeah, well, that we didn't have to touch on, you know. Well, one of the things, um, you know, I, I, I first in terms of your introductory, I mean, you know, you in terms of sort of you describe me in some ways. I'll say, yeah, I did a dissertation, and I'm hopeful. I don't know the extent to which I'll consider myself an expert, but I certainly tried. In terms of, I think it was my responsibility as a Belizean American who has who had certain types of experiences in the United States to chronicle those experience, experiences and to sort of do research because I was finding out that a lot of the things the other researchers were writing about Belize was not necessarily accurate and it was sensational and they were trying to use newfangled theories to attach to exotic groups in the case of, for instance, a Garifuna population. There's actually a lot more studies on the Garifuna than there are is of any other Belizean ethnic group, Mestiz or Creole and so forth. I, I assume that if you had a large Marian population, they'll, they would have taken interest in them as well. I mean, one of my regrets 
um, and uh, in terms of the research that I haven't been able to do over uh, uh, the last couple of years, and that's a long story. Um, but one of the things that I think that we haven't touched on, too, is the difficulties in doing research amongst Belizeans in the United States. It's not an easy task. I assume that if you do it under the auspices of, say, the consulate or so on, it would be difficult, but then you would have to... You'd have serious uh, uh, concerns or questions about the the validity of the data, right? Uh, to what extent people just tell you what you want to know, right? I went out there. I think it was my responsibility, and I uh, did uh, my research. And sometimes it was difficult. I did a master's thesis in 1992, which I titled "Community Cohesion in Belizeans in the United States," looking at a lot of different factors that affect our sense of uh, community, whether it's regional differences, times of arrival, social class, immigration status, all these different things. But what I found out is quite difficult. Uh, uh, sometimes people, they're suspicious. You know, so, what do you want to know that for? You know, or they'll, mm-hmm. they'll cooperate initially, and then you call them back the following day, and they don't answer their phone or, you know, they think they gave you too much information. Or sometimes you'd approach people because we there are these tight bonds amongst Belizeans, right? We still initially, in essence, a community where people know each other, right? So it's like, uh, who do you ma? You know, or who are your parents? Sometimes if you say, oh, my mom was a teacher, and say, oh, yeah, come in, come in. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll give you the information if you're sort of, you weren't Carville Young's son or he came from some remote village, they won't really help you. You don't really have name brand recognition, right? Uh, but once you have some sort of recognition, these people like titles. So they'll, they'll give you all the information that you, that you need. Um, and then sometimes they feel, I remember a cousin of mine, you know, I, I wanted him in 1992 to, to complete a survey he didn't help, right? And he's like, yeah, well, I didn't tell you because I don't have a social security number and this, that, that, whatever. But I'm like, well, do you think this is, I'm going to punch in these numbers and the man's going to come and get you, you know, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of suspicion. I try to, you know, I tell them the purpose of my study. I tell them about the institutional review board that every university has. Right, and it's and it's still difficult. The other thing sometimes too, and this is a sort of a crab in the barrel mentality, where research method methods are concerned, is some of these people don't want to help you because they don't want. Well, two, one is they think it's going to drop true. You know, we had this attitude in Belize in terms of mentality. Chuh, don't drop true. You know, they don't, they don't expect you to succeed, especially. In my case, I was sort of a pioneer doing this research, doggedly pursuing this research. And then there are other people that they just don't want you to succeed, that, you know, and so, so they're not going to help you, right? Uh, well, again, is, this is, is, is this some sort of a, well, is this some sort of cultural, uh, uh, well, and I, and I, I don't, I don't want to make it so, so scientific, but, because, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, and I saw these people stand, you know, that was the first thing I tell you, that they have this kind of a, uh, you said suspicion. Yes, there's a suspicion, but it's almost like an inane, ingrated thing that they have where they don't want to share information with you because they feel that you're up to something or you're um. Yeah, so yeah. So that also inhibits the research, you know? Huh? 
No, I said that also inhibits your research because they don't want to. I mean, here you are trying to get, get empirical data, so, for you know, not because you want to, um, because you're trying to you know, promote, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, some, mm-hmm. a variable that you're trying to, you know, you're trying to mm-hmm. educate the community on, and then you go to the very community trying to mm-hmm. ex- extrapolate that data, and you're having difficulty. <laughs> that that's that's mm-hmm. that says a lot. Yeah, um, and like I said, there are some people who. Uh, you know, uh, they will give you as much information. There's also the gender difference. Women are a lot more cooperative. Uh, and if you uh, sort of ask them to sort of participate, they're more likely uh, to assist you in getting uh, the information that you need than men. Then, of course, I was getting ready to say there there um uh, ethnic differences, right? Um, the Garifuna community was a lot more cooperative um, in terms of the research. I don't really, I think in part it's because the other anthropologists and other academics have, have been interested in that community, and, and so they're more willing to give the information. But I also think that it's because of the nature of the commu- how they oper- the community operates. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I could tell you so many people. I mentioned Mr. Palacio just a while ago. I had a lengthy talk with them, and for you know, when I was doing my dissertation, and he recommended other people. I went to his Garifuna language class a couple of times, and uh, he was cooperative. I also have a lot of uh, Garifuna friends who were able to use their social network. It's like, oh yeah, Jerry's doing a study. You know, help him out, whatever. That was both. For my dissertation and my um, uh, my my my, my I remember when you were thesis. doing. I remember when we were at USC together, you and I. I remember when you were doing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. When, when you were doing that thing, yeah. PhD dissertation. I remember you were doing the research. I remember you going yeah. around in the community and you know and um, mm-hmm. trying to access. I didn't realize that you were having so much problem because I I can recall filling out one mm-hmm. of your um questionnaire mm-hmm. and um. Mm-hmm. And, and help your research, but for me it was mm-hmm. like, wow, you know, I didn't question it because I knew this was something that the community mm-hmm. needed. But I didn't realize that mm-hmm. in the broader community that you were having so much mm-hmm. problem accessing well, information. Well, yeah, I mean, for your I research. think all researchers have problems, uh, but it differs. It differs because of who you are as a researcher, and it differs because of the collective mentality of the community or communities with which you're dealing. Right. Uh, it also uh, differs because, you know, did you get sanctioned for, from, you know, community leaders or, did you, you know, all these different things matter. Uh, for instance, uh, when I was doing the research, there was, and he passed away of all the so-called older, elder community leaders, Lem Vaughn was one of the people that was really helpful. But yeah. the other people within the CBA and so on, they weren't helpful. Actually, and this was a Garifuna gentleman, too. He called me up for, like, until five minutes, you know, or ten minutes and spoke to me about why he didn't want to do the research, you know, mm-hmm. and how isn't that skewed and this and that and whatever. And um, so you have a lot of the older people. There's a generational split in terms of the Belizean community as well uh, that we probably will be able to discuss at another time. You know, of course, we are part of... I'm part of a group like you, Bilal, uh, uh, Derek, right, mm-hmm. Estrada, and I think we're not seen as safe, <laughs> you know, or compliant, right? Uh, I'm not as radical as a lot of people, but I'm on that <laughs> well, other, see, you know, see, other I, group. See, 
in all fairness to M. Jerome, I think what occurs a lot of times, like if you, like in your case as a social scientist who's trying to compile data, and I was talking to mm-hmm. me and Richard Harrison last week talked about this because he feel that we should have a comprehensive database, and mm-hmm. on the surface it sounds easy. Yes, but I, I, well, I don't want to say it's difficult to compile such data on the, mm-hmm. on, on 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 Belize and living in diaspora, so we can know exactly what kind of resource we have available. If you know, if, if for the simple need, for the for the simple fact that we can um, access that data and, and have some sort of community sharing so that for example like you said when before you could have a network or so what where are the jobs where you know what 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 where are the jobs available where, where what what kind of um scholarship do you need to have you know here's the, tap into my 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 uh, my, re- my um my my network here so to get you know so i think along those lines that would make a lot of sense for us to have that yeah, well, I'll, I'll take the, you know our discussion in a different angle and and make it seem a little bit more positive. I think certainly with the advent of the internet uh, for a lot of young kids, uh, it's like advent of the internet. I mean, it didn't exist 20 years ago, right? Um, you have a lot of opportunities um, to compile such a database. I remember when I started my research, we didn't have Facebook, we had emails. Right, we had a couple of Belizean websites that were promoting ter- uh, tourism, which we then used as the message boards to get our message out. Right, uh, that was the way in which I was able to uh, uh, sort of uh, get a diverse group of Belizeans, you know, to participate to be able to inter- uh, interview for my studies. I reached out in part uh, on the internet, and some responded. I mean, there was another interesting case to how I, I was able to get some interviewees who I didn't know were even Belizean. You know, in one case, one gentleman, my car broke down by Washington and, and Western. Hey, Jerome, and hold on one second, it, Jerome. Um, I had a caller who was calling in, but Carla, let me just say, um, um, I don't know if Dr. Strong would want to take calls, but um, he, if we sure, do take sure. a call, it would be maybe like uh, in, the, in the last half hour, like around mm-hmm. 1130. We'll, we can take yeah. a call. So if you want to hold on until then or call back, you know, we'd be more than happy to uh, to entertain a question to Dr. Strawn around that time. Is that okay with you, brother? I mean, you don't you don't yeah. you don't mind taking a call? Um, uh, you know, but if it's an urgent call, I can take no, it no, right not, now. No, no, the caller mm-hmm. can. I, I just found that you know we're not going to interrupt the discussion, but we can we can entertain okay. calls in the last half hour. That would be more you know. Mm-hmm. Logistically easy for me to do, but um, go ahead, brother. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Um, yeah, and I I think you know those are some of the ways I was able to think creatively about how I will have how I could have a diverse group of Belizeans. I remember when the old Key Fest, you know, Patrick Barrow gave me an opportunity to go on stage and explain my research, right? Uh, I did this. I went online and tried to get a diverse group of people. Uh, to interview, right? There are just sometimes accidentally I would meet Belizeans and they would agree to to sort of as a gentleman who was Salvadoran and he helped me uh, fix, well, he helped me call a tow truck, right? And we were talking. I was like, yeah, I'm from Belize. I, oh, my wife is from Belize, right? Mm-hmm. And that led me to an interview with her. And her interview was interesting because she was a mestiza from uh, San Ignacio and her father was black and her mother was uh, was quote-unquote Spanish, right, and so on. So those are the different ways in which I was eventually able to get a diverse group, a uh, balanced group of both male and females, uh, people from all the districts and so forth. So I think the Internet is an interest, uh, important way in which 
uh, we can sort of get people to respond to these, to create a database, right, of all the people. But we also have to have uh, recognize that a lot of people, Belizeans, uh, have drifted away, right, um, in that they are still, they were born there and so on, but they, they, they don't really are uh, part of a sense of community. They have, instead of participating in uh, a communal uh, events and so on, they have these small social networks. Right on Saturday, they meet uh, someone's house or they meet in someone's garage. They play dominoes and so on. But you'll never know that they're Belizean, right? Because they don't go to the day in the uh, you know Hollywood Park Casino and so on. They just stay kind of like local, right? Um, so it, it is difficult, but I think we have to have institutional backing, backing from the conflict. We have to be able to uh, craft a survey, uh, not complicated one, and uh, be able to, for people to use their social network, right, uh, to distribute that see, survey. And this, is what, um, this is what Richard Harrison was discussing. He said because, okay, even though, even with all this fragmentation, even with all this fragmentation mm-hmm. uh, within the diaspora of Belizean, we still are able to, based on estimates from last, mm-hmm. from the World Bank estimates that he provided, give annually at least minimum of $75 million, you know, mm-hmm. $75 million U.S. dollars to the Belizean economy you know, every year. Mm-hmm. And but, mm-hmm. but, but, but then again, what, what he was saying that we don't get the service back from, from, from the Belizean government because, for example, mm-hmm. based on the aggregate that they, that they um, give to the consulate to, or to the embassies, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a pretense. So and it, mm-hmm. since you brought up the fact that yes, it would be good to have institution, institutional backing from the from the mm-hmm. from the consulate in the United States, from for the Belize consulate in, in the United States, we have one in Los Angeles, Miami, Chicago, I believe, mm-hmm. New York. But we don't, even though our remittance back to that country far supersedes, mm-hmm. you know, what any other group is mm-hmm. providing back to Belize. Yet and still, we mm-hmm. can't get that kind of institutional backing for to really mm-hmm. develop a database mm-hmm. for. For, for the Belizean living in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. I find that very well, troubling. I, yeah. I mean, this also, and this will probably, this is a lengthy discussion. It also deals with the politics of migration. Uh, going back to the 1950s, right, uh, the difference between the NIP uh, and the PUP and the, the sort of the support the NIP had from the diaspora, right, Uh Compton Fairwood is sort of the person that most often he's sort of a poster boy of UDP NIP support, and his father, uh, Gerald Fairwood, was instrumental in forming the United Democratic Party. Right, even before this, I mean, one of the things that Compton Fairwood discussed in terms of British Honduran Freedom Committee was I didn't notice, but the idea came from uh, Samuel Haynes, who, uh, who uh, wrote the poem that was the basis for the Belizean National Anthem, right? He was a ex-serviceman. He was a Garveyite. Well, like a lot of Garveyites, they were supporters of the National Party. Um, mm-hmm. And this went on for a long time. And, but by the late, by the early 80s, um, the, the UDP had a favorable view of the diaspora and was able to sort of institute where Belizeans were able to regain their citizenship, even if they, you know, uh, had taken uh, U.S. citizenship well, and just, they were less let me just, Jerome, let me just uh, interrupt here for a second, brother, because this is very important. Because I need to 
my audience to know that after 1981, as soon as we as soon as we got independent, mm-hmm. a lot of the, hundreds of thousands of Belizeans living in the diaspora lost their citizenship. In that sense, we yeah. were uh, we were people without a country then. It was, mm-hmm. and in all fairness, it was only after Mr. Esquivel came in in '84 mm-hmm. that he reinstated it back in. Although he didn't go far enough, he went as to say, mm-hmm. okay, yes, you can still have by descent dual national dual citizenship, and, and you know, mm-hmm. and we were able to like you know. But prior to that, between from say independence in '81 to '84, we were like people without any a country. I mean, I, I mean, mm-hmm. a, a, a descent that we were. Yes, we were living in. Well, United in that sense, if you took American citizenship, you essentially were not Belizean anymore. And the uh, at that time, I don't remember if he was Home Affairs Minister, but uh, Carl uh, C. L. B. Rogers made a comment about it when they were he was asked. And I don't remember. I wrote it. I had it in some paper that I wrote about the comment, but it wasn't a positive one in terms of the way he, in which he looked upon um, the Belizeans in the United States. But in essence... Uh, which is interesting, but Jerome, that's interesting mm-hmm. that he would say that, and this is the same brother, C.L.B. Rogers, that is, when he became ill, yeah, he came Rogers. to convalesce in, in the United States. I mean, it, 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 the hypocrisy just abounds, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, like again, like I said, it was a positive of migration, but the reason I also mentioned the, positive, uh, the politics of migration, because uh, a lot of immigrant communities, um, they had certain policies in place before you had large waves of migration um, uh, to, of their citizens to, to a host country. And therefore, there wasn't as much hostility. Uh, when the issue of absentee voting comes up in uh, Colombia, nobody really discussed it or think that it's unfair. Right or yeah yeah, uh well, in Mexico case, I mean both in salvador uh these parties realize that it's beneficial right uh mm-hmm. so and a lot of other countries are moving uh forward well, it, it didn't become this divisive uh, uh issue because people all agree of the importance of the uh the diaspora to that country's uh, development, the Philippines, even back to the time of Ferdinand Marcus. Uh, when Filipinos were going abroad, different countries to uh, earn a living, he looked upon these immigrants as they were actually considered evils uh, because the Filipino economy was sort of sputtering, right? So people looked upon these immigrants in a favorable light, but this all the, the sort of the resentment and other things concerning, you know, the the, the dual citizenship amendment that in part comes from the attitude of politicians and the policies that were put in place or or the policies that weren't put in place in terms of these communities. So it becomes even more difficult if you don't have policies in place, if you don't have institutions in place and both institutions in place in both the home and host country, it becomes more difficult to mobilize quite often citizens, right, if you don't have enduring institutions. You know, in the United States, when I came here, we used to play basketball at Denver Gym. We had a, a basketball competition. I used to see those, the softball uh, ladies, they used to play, they had a softball league, right? Um, all of a sudden, these institutions just kind of declined, right? Uh, Lem Vaughan, they had CBA. Uh, we have to give credit to the, the, the conflict that we have. Now, he was part of uh, Ernica Steele. They were part of the a pioneering group of Belizeans who created these institutions, right? Yeah, Paul uh, Unfortunately, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. these institutions weren't enduring, and there wasn't outreach on the part of uh, many of these leaders uh, to the new generation, the Breda, people from Breda and so on, to incorporate them. They didn't incorporate people into their institution, but they were people who I, uh, I would sort of, and this might be controversial, they were considered safe. You know, they didn't have anything controversial to say. Well, or, they didn't, you know. I, I, I would say it like this, Jerome. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't uh, challenge the validity of the status quo. They just essentially... Um, yeah, they didn't challenge uh, it. They exactly. essentially good, good. felt that, you know, that, you know, where is Britta? What made Britta very controversial? Even though we were one of the first group to access media in, in the United States on the KPFK, Pacifica Radio, when we mm-hmm. had the Police uh, Caribbean Pulse, you know. We, saw, we felt the need to, uh, to broaden our vision, uh, and, mm-hmm. and Bert Tucker was one of the Bert Tucker, uh, who's a good friend of ours, you and mine. Who he was one mm-hmm. of the uh, our mentors who encouraged us to 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 mm-hmm. access media and to look and and to use that as a medium to to further, like you said, build in, enduring institutions to, to unite Belizeans to look into how we can unify with Belizeans at home. That was the main thing. We wanted to be able to have a dialogue. No, it's easier because mm-hmm. we have the internet. We have um, Skype and all those other. Technology available. Mm-hmm. He's the first to have a dialogue with Belizeans. I could pick up the phone right now, like last week, I was talking to Richard Harrison and talking about it for free. So the thing about it is that, um, you know, in coming back to that point of enduring institutions, I think we still have a, 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 a um, we still have this. I don't want to say disconnect, but this 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 mm-hmm. lagging behind of the, mm-hmm. the, the 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 government in Belize, the, the mm-hmm. government of the day, and it doesn't have to be any. Mm-hmm. I'm not, Singling on anyone, I'm just saying we need more opportunity for our for the government to to recognize that look, the diaspora is an integral part mm-hmm. of the development of that country. How we can best incorporate mm-hmm. it as opposed to have this open hostility or or making yeah. bad remarks about them, you know. And that to me is one of the challenges that we have. Yeah, and I think we have a window of opportunity right now, right? They have people who are like me, right? They, well, I have people like you that go down to Belize all the time. They have people who, like me, can disappear, right, and just become sort of quote-unquote American but cho- choose not to do so, right? I'm on Facebook try to engage Belizeans, but I'm also in Facebook sometimes talking to my old uh, military uh, brothers in arms um, that are American, right? Uh, then there are people like my, one of my brothers who is t- two years older than me, and, I mean, either once I spoke with him and he didn't even know who the prime minister was, right? But <laughs> you, I think you know, if we... <laughs> no, I can't yeah, believe well, <laughs> Yeah, he, uh, I... I I think he was like, who is the prime minister? Is it Barrow or, <laughs> you know, what's interesting or whatever? Jerome, what's interesting mm-hmm. about Bert is because I remember as a child, and I used to, mm-hmm. I used to talk to Bert about because he was into sports, and I mean, you know, he had mm-hmm. a brother who, I mean, he was he he was one of the most scientific people I know when it comes to how to jump fundamentals of basketball. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he, that was one of his the things that he liked. Mm-hmm. He also boxed, as I know, but I can't believe yeah, he exactly. Bert Bert with. Yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, point you making, though. Yeah, he uh, he was in he, but he fits into the community in a in a certain area, right? When Saron Smith had his basketball league in the early eighties, he was a big part of that league. That's that's how he's a part of the Belizean community through basketball, right? Uh, he still talks about the basketball league today. He he wish it would still be there because that's mm-hmm. how his his sort of interaction with Belizeans was was true basketball, and, 
uh, you know, that basketball league is no longer there, right, and so on. So one of the things is that at home we have to, you have to try to create incentives for Belizeans to reintegrate into this broader sense of community. I mean, up until 84, there was on the part of one segment of this community, right, uh, those who passionately wanted to see George, the PUP lose an election, right, in 1984. They were a big part of the uh, United Democratic Party, right? And then after the UDP won once, and then they won in 93, it's still a passion there, but not as much. And you could almost compare that group to an exile community, exiles like Vietnamese or the Cubans, right, the rabid mm-hmm. anti-Castro Cubans. Right, uh, they have a passion in terms of overthrowing Fidel Castro. Well, in the case of a lot of the pro UDP segment of our community, uh, once George Price, uh, the PUP lost in '84, and then they lost in '93, the passion is still there, but that driving force or desire, you know, is not there, uh, you know, there as much. I think what so, happened. What happened to Jerome is that, you know, I think, Jerome, listen, we need to take a break because, you know, we're on the top okay. of the hour. But um, I want my mm-hmm. listeners to, um, if you want to call in, it's uh, 714-242-6119. That's 714-242-6119. And if you want to join us by Skype, it's uh, BTR, listener 029. I'm talking to Dr. Jerome Strong, and we're discussing um, immigration with, with the diaspora and belief. So um, we're going to take a break, brother, and then we're going to come back. Is that Okay. Okay, good. Let's catch our break and come back. All right, take up the discussion. All right, all right. Okay.
seeing, and me and Dr. Bowa had discussed this, and mm-hmm. I know you recall this, and when I had him on, without seeing as if though we're competing with Belizeans in Belize mm-hmm. for a job or for resources. You see? Because that, that also leads to resentment. Because they believe, oh, well, you try to play, you try coin because you have a PhD, because you, you did whatever, you know, because you, you, you're educated, you, go, you know, you got a college, whatever, you can come back and get, you know. But it's not a competition that we're talking about to, mm-hmm. to get jobs. You know, it's, a, it, it's more of a corporation. And I think that is what's lost in the Belizeans living in Belize. That look, the diaspora believe they're not trying to compete to go back there and get no job or to uproot you from, you know, your 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 your, your social mobility. Mm-hmm. You know, so well, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think one of the things too, I mean, other than sort of how people short, short, try to shape the dialogue, right? I certainly uh you know, the the UDP previous UDP administrations uh did try in terms of uh, reaching out to the Belizean community. But quite often, the way in which they do it, it's problematic um, because, uh, for instance, you know, they quite often people, some of the people that they're consulting, they're not sort of the people that hang out in Charlotte Jack's backyard or something like that. They're people who wear suits, right, and suits and tie, Mr. This and Mr. That. They're... There's a whole segment of the Belizean community that many of the people who consider themselves leaders within this community um, are, are not even aware of, right? Uh, they don't even know that they exist. So quite often when they speak to a lot of these leaders at home, these people are not included in the conversation. Uh, there are other people that they're not, they're not sort of overtures, uh, to other people, Belizeans in the diaspora, uh, who can make a difference at home. When you say leaders, so you talking about like people from like you talking about like people from the consulate and that that those, those sort of people. Well, yeah, you know I don't want to really. Yeah, I don't really want to call names. Uh, well, I know I'm not asking you to call names. I'm saying because yeah. I, I, I can mm-hmm. recall, you know, my experience has been you have people like you have people who call themselves friends of the UDP or you know mm-hmm. different different groups who who tend to speak. You know, as if though they're speaking for the broader community when they're not. You yeah, know I mean, I, I exactly. mean, I'm not calling any, exactly. but I'm saying that's the reality. Exactly. They sometimes they act as if though they're speaking for the broader community. So that's one problem in terms of understanding Belizeans uh, abroad. Who do you speak to understand the sort of conditions people face, or the, the, the sort of the everyday life of Belizeans in in the diaspora? I often say that, um, you know, some people come here on vacation and they drive up on down Crenshaw Boulevard or they even come here as students, but they don't really know the day-to-day life of Belizeans, the ups and downs, those who have papers from who don't have papers, those who are employed from who are, not empl- uh, who are unemployed, those who are, you know, mortgage or those, you know, all these different things. Uh, you know, people don't really have an understanding of the nitty-gritty of, of the Belizean community. So quite often, although many of these leaders have been immigrants themselves, like Gaspar Vega, um, many of them don't really understand the life of Belizean people and the, where they're getting the information he, he from. He used to at one point, Gaspar Vega. Yeah, he, he, so he used to live here, exactly. By I mean, mission, I, he was running the United States, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there there's so many other people who have lived here. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were a part of a community, right? Uh, they have people, Belizeans in L.A., but they're not really a part of any sense of community. 
right, um, in, in, in the sense that they go to any of the activities, the events, and so on. They didn't go to the key fest or, or whatever. Um, so we have to really look at that sort of, so uh, you know, whether it's the UDP or the People's United Party, we certainly remember the, the visit of uh, George Price and other members of the People's United Party in the early 90s and the impact that had. Right mm-hmm. in terms of when uh, uh, Ernesto Castillo was the the conflict, right? We need to have more of a positive attitude uh, in terms of uh, the diaspora. We need to fig- uh, they need to figure out how to incorporate people, right? Instead of the uh, continued hostility. But, but Joe, let me just say this. Attitude- let, me, let me just say this. Since you brought it up, I think when when Mr. Price came in nineteen somewhere in nineteen ninety one ninety two, I think it's one of those days. It was before he called the early election. Um, my group brother, well, I was with Noor Mohammed on the radio to interview him on KPFK, but it was mm-hmm. we, we were the one who suggested as part of the itinerary that, look, let's take him to Manuel Arts High School, where yeah. because we know that, you know, touching on what you're saying, that this high school had a huge community around it that were Belizean mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. a huge community of kids that, that that had Belizean roots and parents that were going mm-hmm. to Manolak High School, so we felt that would have mm-hmm. it was a good venue for Mr. Price to go speak, mm-hmm. and we were corrected because we were correct because he did a fabulous job in addressing that that mm-hmm. that auditorium full with kids, and we, we, yeah, more, yeah. more than thirty percent of them were were, uh, were Belizean American kids, you know. So um, mm-hmm. we also have to look yeah. at how you know the, you know we can bring that was one way of tapping into the resource that was available to try to get the diaspora Belizean to get engaged. I think that yeah. was a successful attempt there by, the, yeah. you know, with Ernesto Castillo with us along with Britta. Yeah, one of the other things that we haven't mentioned, and that this is probably a long conversation, is the role that the Belize Caribbean Pulse uh, played in the uh, late 80s, early 90s in sort of, Belizeans in Los Angeles have a greater sense, having a greater sense of community, more people aware of our presence here, and the impact, because it was also broadcasted in Belize, the impact we actually had, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly you are doing, trying to sort of recreate uh, the spirit of the Belizean, with the Belize Caribbean Pulse with this, this program that you have, right? And we Many of us are online trying to sort of contribute to the dialogue, but it played a significant role, uh, and many of the political leaders paid attention, right? Uh, the, the time in, uh, where the Belizean, the Belize Caribbean Pulse was created was also one of the most vibrant times in the Belizean community in Los Angeles, right? Uh, the the mid-'80s um, and up until the mid-'90s, right? Um so mm-hmm. that's significant. What happened from the mid-90s onwards, did people sort of become more, for want of a better word, assimilated, right, um, and so on. And it also, I think, on, on the, in terms of Belizean leaders at home, they probably are looking, you know, I don't know if they look at us and say, oh, they ain't already, or they don't have that program, or they aren't strong anymore. So we don't really care about their voice, right, Um uh, maybe that's that's the case, and uh, the people that they do sort of look at the model uh, in terms of Belizeans playing a role in the uh, in terms of Belize is sort of again the Ellsworth grants, right? Going back to Belize with their own resources and starting 
you know, that cancer clinic and so on. That's the sort of the way that they look at the health, that mm-hmm. many of us are going to go back, back with our own resources and do our and own which thing. Is, but that model, see, but that, that, model, that model there is, is, is skewed because, look, you know, we like you said, you must have institutional um some sort of institutional help because yeah you could go back with your own resources but that's not that's not the model that I see the Mexicans use or the Israelis use or any other you know, any other ethnic group that that's transferring mm-hmm. back to Belize they have that institutional help where they say okay look we have maybe know how and some resources but we still need an official mm-hmm. uh, recognition or official help from the yeah. from the government of the day to set up shops so that we can become yeah, more exactly. green you know no, I'm not saying that I can be defiant and say yeah. oh we could do it by ourselves but we still need to be able to incorporate mm-hmm. it into the into the into the uh, the social fabric vis-a-vis the, these enduring institutions that are already established. And I think that's one of the things that Richard Harrison was was saying that we don't yeah. have that set up yet. Yeah, we don't we don't have that. And you know, it was it, it, it's surprising. I mean, a lot of people they see oh, you know, you guys want absentee voting and this, and you want citizenship, but. I think a lot of people don't really realize if you do grant Belizeans the the right to vote absentee and you pass the citizenship dual citizenship amendment, it will re-energize the Belizean community and actually people will feel a greater sense of responsibility and start mm-hmm. contributing even more. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, even my brother, you know, he'll like, oh, what? Although I don't think he'll probably, even if he's given the opportunity to vote absentee, uh, you know, he probably won't vote. But the thing is, is that you're going to bring in their different levels of participation, right? And not using Dr. Grant as an example. You know, he's at the core in terms of, uh, you know, going back to Belize. Then there's another level of participation. You know, you, you know, you go back there often. Then I'm like an outer ring of participation. And then yeah, there's some people levels, even further than me. Mm-hmm. You know, at different levels, right? So if you if you're able to have some initiative that we engage Belizeans abroad, you know, dual citizenship issues of voting, you actually have more people. You know, uh, you have greater you energize these different Belizean communities. But I think the way in which they see it is that we'll form strong communities. We'll be upwardly mobile. We'll take our millions of dollars. We increase our, our, um, uh, you know, our participation in these remittances or whatever. Then we're gonna kind of accept you guys. You guys have to prove yourself, right, and so on. And in many ways, they don't really realize the, the ways in which Belizeans abroad, maybe not overtly, but have contributed to the development of Belize uh, beyond remittances, right? Uh, mm-hmm. How many Belizeans? It, through their capacity as workers and students, have encouraged their their colleagues to go to Belize. You know, in some ways, we have been sort of the uh, advertisement for Belize, right? Uh, we we have promoted Belize in a lot of different ways. Well, well see, I know, but there's a lot of there's there's there's, there's, there's I mean, there's other um, you know things that you can't quantify, and there's other you know intrinsic mm-hmm. things you can't quantify. But I think for the purpose of empirical data, we say we use. We use um, remittance as as a means, but I you're right. There are other intangibles that you can't quantify that that goes well, yeah. far beyond just you know um, you know the remittances. Certainly, it's important, but we have a lot of other intangibles that we don't measure. For example, um, Vanessa Jenkins' uh, group, the mm-hmm. B, you know the uh, Belize Diabetes Association of New York, they're going to be mm-hmm. going to Belize 
with a group of doctors in August. So you know, there's things that are. I mean, you see, but I'm not sure when I when when I have Vanessa on and she promised to come on, I will ask her and find out prove further how they're doing it, how what kind of institutional what kind of institutionalized help they're getting from from on the mm-hmm. ground there from the government and that sort of thing. So it would be instructive mm-hmm. to understand how they're doing that. You know, to take yeah. a whole group of doctors yeah. back to Belize in August. Mm-hmm. You know, and and this was similar to the Ken thing that um, Bertucca. Well, I had us involved in back in the early, late 80s uh, through the mm-hmm. United Nations Development Program, which was a transfer of know-how to expatriate nationals. I would like mm-hmm. to know from Vanessa, who, who amongst the doctors are Belizean? How many of them you know, have any ties to Belize? How many of them even have yeah. any you know, relationship with Belize? So that, those things I would be interested to know, to understand. Yeah. You know, but, so on that level that we're discussing, it's been done. Because, I mean, Vanessa Jenkins yeah. is a shining example of her group out in New York City. That's doing something like that, you know, to go yeah. back and you know, you know, bring awareness on diabetes as far as, as it relates to bleeding. So, um, but coming back to what you were suggesting, I just brought it up just to say that that I just use it as an example of um, of how cooperation with you know with, with, with groups in with various groups in the United States, uh, Belizean groups with vis-a-vis you know the Belizeans down there in, in, at, at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me ask you this. You, okay, and this is a this is a very touchy touchy thing that's been going up. In your uh, in your research, which I, you, you did your, your your dissertation back from the late nineties, so it's been mm-hmm. a while now. Mm-hmm. What would be a good grasp in terms of the number of Belizeans? And I'm talking about descent. What would be a good one? Well, you can include descent too. Some people say I would say it's more than half. Of what the population of Belize is, what's hundred of two hundred fifty thousand, about half of that are residing outside. What, what's your what's your what's your reason your research? You mean in just the United States or in Canada or other places? Well, in no, the no, no, in, 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 Well, let's okay. You well, know, it's, I don't it's do difficult. I mean, I I, I I focus mainly on Belizeans in the United States. Okay, and, the US, um, then. Okay. Um, and you know, uh, Richard mentioned something is an article actually as part of the book on the 25th anniversary of Belizean independence, where I mentioned Belizean immigration, and I think like I had a really low estimate, like 110,000 to 120,000, and that was based on the 19, the 2010 census, not a what was it? The how let me see, was it the 2010 census? No, it was the, the, the 2000 census, right? Uh, when the ancestry question, there was a question in that census that didn't, uh, wasn't in the 2010 census that asked, uh, are you Belizean ancestry? And I think it was like a low number, like only 75,000 Belizeans uh, claimed Belizean ancestry in the United mm-hmm. States. And of that number, and this was significant, and he mentioned this was like almost half, of those people claiming Belizean ancestry were see, in the, the, uh, the problem California. I have with that, well, let me. Hmm? Wait, no, no, no. Okay, go ahead. Well, let me just say that the problem yeah, I have well, with well, that. That's significant well, in itself because finish it. okay, go ahead, finish uh, the fact that we are in Los Angeles, people will claim a Belizean ancestry where you have a, the largest community more so than anywhere else. They have a stronger sense of identity, right? Um, but it brings the issue whether estimates are from 120,000 to 130,000, it brings up a lot of significant issues, right? Uh, For instance, the people who came here in the 1950s, like my uncle, 
right? But more than half of them are no longer here. They've passed away, right? People keep on thinking that, oh, we keep, you know, there are more and more and more people coming. What about those people who came here during World War II? Well, they're not around anymore, right? Uh, mm-hmm. People have passed away. Some people go back, although not a, as, as a large number of people. As well, what kind of data do you get up from your research, though? What kind of data well, what I did was I looked at a, a lot of different sources. Uh, he mentioned the Vernon study, right? I looked at data from um, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, uh, the people who were um, uh, 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 came here as permanent residents, right? The numbers were low up until 1981 when Belize got its own quota, which the quota was separated from uh, the British quota. And then from there, from 81 to, uh, to probably um, 1990 and beyond, right, you see the numbers of Belizeans coming here, uh, um, you know, as legal permanent residents increase, right? Then I looked at that, so, well, hmm, for everyone comes here as a legal permanent resident, how many do you have? that are undocumented, right? So you look at that source, you look at the actual data that you have, you try to come up with some sort of a, a formula for estimating the number of people, right, based on, um, uh, based on you know, uh, legal migration, based on how people answered the census, and so forth. You also have, you could also look at, for instance, Los Angeles being, being bigger, uh, uh, having the biggest population of Belizeans, and then say, okay, well, what is the second largest, uh, where, in what city are the second largest number of Belizeans, right? Some people in New York, right? Uh, in what percentage is that, you know, half of the Belizeans in Los Angeles? Is that two-thirds, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go to Chicago, you look at all the big cities. Now, there's another problem, too, in terms of estimating the number of people, if you get each community leader from Chicago, New York, Miami, say, guess what? How many people, Belizeans, are here in your city? Right? Miami, say 10,000. New York, say, man, there must be like 40,000 here. You'll end up with 250,000 people, right? Uh, because when you put all those numbers together, so you've got to really be careful on, you have to say, okay, what data are you using? What are sort of the formulas that you're coming up with? How, what, how do you take uh, the number of people who will die, you know, into consideration, right, uh, mortality into consideration? How, what, how, to what extent do you take return migration into consideration or deportation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Although we know a lot of people, you know. There's all those uh, offending variables that must be considered, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. we have to really consider a lot of these things then we come to the real tricky issue in terms of the second and third generation. And the, whether... The yeah, the ones by descent, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether we consider them Belizean or not, right? Um, uh, we can consider the second generation if both of their parents are Belizean, but do we want to consider them uh, Belizean Americans if one of their parents? I have a yeah. cousin mm-hmm. who... Uh, you know, his children are half Japanese. Uh, he doesn't take him, you know, he doesn't take him to Belizean events, although sometimes I kind of scold him and say, hey, you know, there's the, the thing at uh, Hollywood Park. You know, those, you know, does Junior want to go? Right. But, you, so you know what, but, but Jerome, let me, just, let me just interject here right quick. I think they are Belizean the minute they're born, as long as one of their parents 
Mm-hmm. Asian, not from born Belizean, by descent that yeah, makes them. Yeah, you get into well, I know what you're saying, but, I what you're saying but, but we can sit here and say, politically, mm-hmm. yes, that, you know, but, but these people, for them to actually admit it, because I think that's one of the things that we have, because let's say mm-hmm. if, you, if, you, have a, if you, you married to a Belize woman and you, mm-hmm. you guys have a child, there's no question, mm-hmm. but if I'm married to a Japanese mm-hmm. or even African-American or, 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 or some other mm-hmm. et- ethnic, ethnic person mm-hmm. and bear a child with them, then yes, that child will still have Belizean by descent, but it was all, you know, obviously American. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very, mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah, I, you I, have to really figure out. I mean, that would be a greater discussion of whether we really count who do we count in terms of the second generation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even with the second generation, like I said, they have two parents. You already want to count them because they also, and this is one of the areas in terms of my dissertation is, the racial dynamics in the United States, where they experience segmented but assimilation. See, but Jerome. There are, by, mm. law, by law, they are Belizean because, I mean, constitutionally, mm. in the United States. So, I mean, the question is not, I mm. think, it's not whether or not they are Belizean. They are. The question yeah, is well, now, well, what do you go about counting them? Mm. Yeah, whether yeah. you want to really count them. What I'm saying is, although you're talking about the law, there's also racial dynamics in the United States. Uh, these kids experience segmented assimilation, right, um, in terms of being assimilated into the African-American community or the greater pan-ethnic Latino community. Most Belizeans here, if they're ethnically Creole, if they're ethnically Garrison, they're going to get incorporated into the African-American community. If they're uh, mestizo, they're going to be into the Latin community. Now, cities, like I said, areas differ. If they're in New York, they might retain a stronger sense of ethnic identity as Belizeans. Because of the Caribbean flavor as in opposed New York. To, mm-hmm. Yeah, as mm-hmm. opposed to you have a larger Caribbean community, they have staked out a sense of a panelist Indian identity. Mm-hmm. But if they live in Fargo, North Dakota, you want, do you really count them, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, if they yeah. live in Los Angeles, you can count mm-hmm. them. But even in Los Angeles, some of them are divorced from that sense of community. So, you know, the question is, and this, you know, is a big debate, is who do you count? You know, to, to sort of, do we just fluff out the Belizean population in the United States because we want to go to the city council and say, oh, we've got 75,000 people here? Or do we want to have a reasonable estimate of the number of people counting some second-generation and deciding, you know what, we're only going to count a third, a half, you know, three-quarters of those people who are here. And I think that, that that's one of the biggest areas that we, we uh, you know, is, um, is, is the most problematic in terms of uh, where do we count these uh, people, right? And then recognizing that though we've had people coming here since World War, World War I or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, those people are not, even people who came in the 60s, they're not around anymore, you know. Um, and we don't have a steady stream of people coming in, right? Well, let we me just clarify people. something, though. Are you saying that mm-hmm. we shouldn't count people who've been here longer than 30 years or what? I mean, just no, 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 no. Those people, if they're born in Belize, that's no problem. I'm, I'm contending that it's more problematic in terms of uh, the fact the U.S. raised second generation in particular those of mixed parentage, whether we want to really incorporate them into the population. You know, well, let me ask you uh, this also, too, then. As far as the diaspora leaders, are you aware of any database that can 
that can augment any kind of study that we we would want to embark on. Because I know some people in New York said that they are starting on a. Um, Mm. Lisa brought another said that they might be starting a database out there in New mm. York, but I'm trying to figure out, are you aware of any other leaders in, say, Los Angeles, Chicago, or anywhere else that mm. might be want to start a database that can help us out? No, I'm, I'm not aware. I remember about 10 years ago someone approached me about this, but when they didn't, I heard their, their sort of their plan. It was sort of identifying people so you could market to them. <laughs> you know, it was more or less a business okay, thing, right? All right. You know, it's like, okay, you tell me how many people you have here. They want to find out the demographic makeup so they could market, target that community, right? And I pretty much didn't think that was what was going to work. But well, I remember the late Paul Warren really, told me he had one, though. He had told me the late Paul Warren. I think even Ernie Castillo told me that they had, like, well, they're calling it a database, but they had access to, um, I guess, people would come there, write down their phone number and, you know, address or whatever the case is, and, that was one thing yeah, that yeah. they were using, the, you know, to... I think know, over the years, a lot of people have uh, a lot of people have uh, done that, you know. I mean, it, it's commendable, and I think that uh, even more so now, you know, with the Internet, uh, you know, uh, social media, I think that's something that we need to do. We need to sort of craft, you know, surveys, um, and I'm willing to help, you know, uh, some people... You know, in terms of the areas of research, methods, and statistics, uh, they're a little bit better than me, and they could, I could help them because I have an understanding. I mean, all they have to do is really con- uh, uh, get in contact with me, you know, and I'll help mm-hmm. as much as I possibly can. But I think it's something that's needed. And, again, uh, even doing something like that is going to energize a sense of community, you know, it'll be a, people will be able to go online somewhere, right, and you have nice graphs. You have pie chart, well, beyond pie charts, right, uh, multivariate mm. analysis well, and all these different things. Regression analysis and all that kind of stuff, yeah. I know, yeah, yeah, all okay. that stuff, mm. you know, they could, mm. they could look at something that they could really understand. And the kids will then be able, we are talking about second generation, if they want to do a paper, in, you know, their uh, elementary school or their college class, they could go there and they could get the information, right? Uh, So it is is really important. I mean, it's one of my real regrets that I never really continued the research the way in which I wanted to. But I would urge anyone who's listening now or, you know, uh, that they need to start doing as much research as believe in in particular in areas I think the research is lacking in Chicago, uh, New York, um, Miami, and other places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and well, let me give you an example, though, Jerome. See, mm-hmm. where I live, out in North Fontana, it's like, okay, um, it, it's interesting. I mean, you have, I don't want to call it in, but I mean, yeah, well, I'll call some names. Mm-hmm. Like Kurt Rallis, he lives maybe mm-hmm. across the street, from, you know, across the street from where mm-hmm. I live. Um, Joy Davis and others live maybe, mm-hmm. you know, maybe like five minutes away. But there are Belizeans out here, and a lot of them have kids mm-hmm. too. And you have, like, mm-hmm. my dad, he lives, you know, like five minutes from where I live. And see, this community mm-hmm. that I live in, it's not, it's very rural in the sense that it's, mm-hmm. well, it's not in Los Angeles per se, you know, where, you, mm-hmm. know, it's, you know, it's about 60 to 70 miles away from downtown. So the point I'm mm-hmm. making is that we are scattered when it comes to even Southern California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I mean, so there's urban sprawl, but the, the interesting thing about Southern California and how people try to create a sense of community, 
They try to do so, you know, in the past people try to do so when Mel and John's was there. The restaurants, they try to go to the parties. I used to go to a lot of Louisiana parties. Not anymore because I don't hear about them, you know, sadly. And also people, a lot of people exist within social networks, right? Uh, like you said, in Fontana, people know each other, right? They, they, they go to someone's house for Sunday dinner, you know, typically, well, rice and beans or whatever, and mm-hmm. they have parties, they call each other, right? So they, they're developing social networks. Now we're sort of developing these online networks. We're connecting to each other. There are people who are on uh, social media who I've never met before or never had mm-hmm. any contact, but I have contact with them now. Right, so people find ways of creating a sense of community in the most basic way, and there's the hope that that will sort of lead to something else, right, and so on. It might not be the, a sense of place, right? Uh, we know we can go in the Pico Union area and say, oh, a lot of Guatemalans live there. Uh, in the past, right, a lot of Belizeans were around Je- uh, Jefferson and Western, and still a lot of a lot of them still live in the area. Right, mm-hmm. but um, people uh, are com- creating uh, communities that are not necessarily place-based communities, uh, and we have to really look at that. But the thing is, is that uh, with the, this research, we have to kind of create the research. We have to have the government more interested to energize these Belizean communities. Right? Uh, there are other ways in which you can energize a sense of community. <laughs> Sorry. I remember with the uh, the the the, the, the sort of. Who, who, who do you see as the leaders in the diaspora, as far as you know that can be in a board and on such on a task like this, in Los Angeles or who, in California? Who's the leader of the diaspora? Who, yeah, who do you see as, as leaders in diaspora that can be a part of this that this endeavor here that we that, you know creating? Are you asking a difficult question because then it goes back to my old master's thesis about social cohesion and building yeah, the yeah. mm-hmm. community in the in that you have I mean you have a now you have a greater sense of participation on the part of uh, mestizo Belizeans in the past when you had the tea fest or the day in the park and so on. They would be there in clusters, but you never really felt like they were sort of a bigger sense of community. Recently, with the uh, the Cultural Foundation, which I think many of its members are based on in Corozal and uh, Orange Walk, you have a greater participation of mestizos in a sense of community. In the past, they were lar- for large part invisible. They were here but they weren't really a participant in many of these things. You had a Creole-dominated community. You had the Garifuna community have a parallel sense of community, right, and so on. And a lot of these things uh, affected um, this greater sense of community, but we still kind of struggled. We still had the sort of um, the, the program, the East Caribbean Pulse. People could tune in for, for two hours and, you know, felt like they belonged to something bigger. But now we have a more fragmented sense of community, and um, it's a difficult question because people people are all doing their own thing, right? Um, you know, but what I so found, though, Jerome, okay, in my mm-hmm. in my visit to like place, well, I used to live in New York City, you know, um, in mm-hmm. the early '80s, and what I found, you know, as opposed to living now in California, is that okay, in Los Angeles proper itself, 
you know, for example, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, Mel and John's, there is a sense of community right around there within, say, maybe two or three square miles of each other, you know, in a, in a, in a radius of two or three square miles around mm-hmm. the Adams area there where, you know. So there is a sense of community there. But when I went to New but but in New York, okay, um, mm-hmm. you, I don't think that you could say, well, I have a Belizeans who live right down the street from me or, you know, yeah. or you could go, you know. So I think it, 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 it's all fragmented depending on the, on the environment and the location yeah, exactly. of where you are. Exactly, like my cousin in Brooklyn, uh, you know, like 15 years ago, him, uh, in the building that he lived, there were a lot of Belizeans, and they would meet up and downstairs and just hang out. Uh, some mm-hmm. of those guys went back to Belize, some of those guys moved on to other places, but he still meets at the park. forgot what the name of the park, where you usually play football, every, you know. Linden, 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 Linden yeah. Park. Yeah, like it's that. on Linden, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, you know, people try to re- uh, create a sense of communities in um, a sense of community in, in these places. Uh, but then you have the bigger pan, uh, uh, sort of the West Indian pan-ethnic community to which they belong, right, and so on. And that's a big difference. An interesting thing, too, when I first came here when I was 14 in uh, Los Angeles and you didn't have as many Belizeans, when you went somewhere, I remember we were downtown, and people were really interested. Like, oh, you're from Belize? You know, I haven't met a Belizean in a while. You know, and the person mm. explained where they came from. As the population grew, and Belizeans could be seen in any part of the city, you know, the sort of the interest or desire to cling to your people was not there as much as it was in the 70s and early 80s when there are fewer number of people here. People had a greater sense, a greater urge in creating a sense of community when there are fewer people here than when there's a larger number. And yeah. probably you know, many well, well, you know, say, and, and I think also, too, when I was talking to Kenya okay, Bilal, Morris had this conversation, and Congresswoman Karen Bass was saying, okay, Based on what you're discussing, this cohesion, mm-hmm. it has also inhibited our ability to organize politically. Because current Bass is saying, mm-hmm. okay, where's where these Belizean come? Let them, you know, you you you're a political mm-hmm. block, you're you're a voting block. Mm-hmm. Put pressure on me to um you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to to lobby for you in certain in, in mm-hmm. certain causes, you know. So I think it, it's critical that yeah, we develop a sense of uh, yeah. She's looking at. She's looking at the uh, immigrant communities in a particular way. Not every immigrant community uh, is mobilized to participate in the system. Some people mm-hmm. have a higher level of consciousness, like Cuban in Miami. Uh, they mm-hmm. are courted by the Republican Party. They wanted to get Fidel Castro out. We had the Vietnamese community that way. Professional immigrants have a tendency to not really belong sometimes to a sense of community. Filipinos are one there, and they have for a long time been considered an invisible minority, right? They, you see them as, you know, the typical Filipino nurse. But if you talk about it, and there are thousands and thousands of Filipinos in the United States, they're one of the groups that have a high rate of uh, immigration. But the thing is, you can't really speak about a Filipino community in the same way that you could speak of a Salvadorian community. Sometimes groups become politicized to the extent of, uh, when they came to the United States, their more mode of incorporation and their context of reception. For instance, the Haitian community, the difficulties they had when they came to the United States and you know being treated different from the Cuban immigrants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 that 
and then they had resources for from international organization it it created a greater politic you know they became more politicized right and that creates a sense of community as i you know going back when i talked about the sort of the the udp the friends of the udp right and how they were mobilized politically but it dealt with transnational politics interesting though was that when these people were engaged in transnational politics they were also engaged in local politics because that was the time when you had Tom Bradley became mayor in 1973 right mm-hmm. you had uh, two councillors Robert Farrell was really interested in the Bolivian mm-hmm. community mm-hmm. Yep. you had mm-hmm. uh, Cunningham you had Mervyn Dimele, the Trinidadian-born mm-hmm. lieutenant uh, governor, and mm-hmm. a lot of the Bolivians, like Paul Warren, were involved in politics. Yeah. They became Indeed. citizens, and mm-hmm. they were, that was the sort of the start of black politics in L.A. But I think also I've noted black politics, Karen Bass and other people, you know, um, what's his name, Mark Ridley Thomas, is many of Bolivians might, you know, I think they... they feel that, you know, we don't really see an entryway into politics of Los Angeles, because that politics evolves around places like First AME Church, West Angeles Church, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we don't really feel like we can be a voting bloc, right? And then, of course, although there are many people that have become U.S. citizens, um, that there's still a lot of Louisians who are not U.S. citizens and even undocumented immigrants, right? So that creates a problem, but uh, we have had a significant impact, right? There are a lot of Belizean kids, people know about us, but, yeah, we don't really have that sort of uh, Girl, political I wanna, power. I want to take it to mm-hmm. Belize for a second. I mean, I mean, we've touched a lot on, you know, Belize, but and I know we don't have a lot of time left, so I want you to, you know, be as brief as you can. Do you see the indigenous um, Caribbean and Maya as a different kind of Belizean um, uh, I don't want to use the word different kind. That song so, you know, but for lack of a better word, they were different, you know, different. Do you see them as a different kind of believing, believing as far as their social mobility and so forth? Do Given I the land rights, Belize. Given the land rights, the Belizean, mm-hmm. the, the Mayans and the Garifuna, you know, given the land, uh, as it relates to the land rights history in Belize, do you see them as some sort of different Belizeans or... Um, I think compelled no, I don't. I don't. I uh, I don't see them as different, but there are some things I think that do reinforce differences, and it creates a dilemma, right? To the extent that you can ethnicity can be instrumental in mobilizing you as a group of people, it can also create problems not only in terms of the nature of your relationship to other groups but also it reinforces your sense of ethnicity, right? Uh, so in the case of the Mayan communities, I looked at a picture yesterday when I think one of those Supreme Court justice uh, judgments or decisions were passed, right, in the uh, Mayan groups in the, in, the, in, the, in the, you know, sitting in the court, right? Um, and I sort of, you know, it's a perception of the group, uh, you know, that has occurred. Uh, one of the things that has uh, happened over the last 20 or 30 years, I always give the, the story of when I was a kid, you know, going to Sunday market with my mother and saw this short Mayan woman with all her traditional clothes and asking, asking my mother, who's this person? You know, and she explained, you know, oh, that's a Mayan from Toledo. My father is from Toledo, but I never went there, right? And mm-hmm. so that there was a sense of otherness, right? But since then, 
right at my mom before she passed away, a Mayan woman was taking care of her, and she spoke the Kesi uh, 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 language to her kids who were back in Toledo. But uh, they're integrating, uh, more Mayans are integrating, Southern Maya are integrating into Belizean society. Um, they're spreading through the country. And when that happens, it could become like the Barranco situation where Dr. Palacio spoke about the, the village losing people, right? And as the village lose people because they're not economic opportunities, then there are questions of whether they retain their identity uh, because of issues of residential mobility, right, internal migration. But when you have the land rights issue, what it also does is ethnicity is your strength. But in it being your strength, it could also create a sense of otherness as well, right, uh, in terms of the perception that people have of the group, unless that you have you create alliances with other groups, uh, Creoles, um, uh, Garifuna, and other groups, just like how Martin Luther King, right, you were in the civil rights movement. Yeah, it was a black movement predominantly, but you also had people who were Latino, people who were white. The Jewish community played a big role in the black civil rights struggle because they knew what their experiences were as well. So you have to create these alliances because ultimately, as much as you have support, international support for your cause and you're winning in the court, you have to worry in a multi-ethnic society, not only of how you are, are perceived, but in terms of the possibility of greater resentment. And we see how that evolved right after the Brown versus Board of Education case. Although many people uh, recognize that the civil rights struggle was just in the United States, but down okay, the road... But do you think that they're both indigenous the to the, the Mayas and the... Well, that's the contention that Dr. Palacios and they were making mm. in Barango, that, that the indigenous are... That the, the Garifunas are indigenous as well as the Mayas. Do you view, how do you view that? Very briefly, because... The, well, I do, I do think that they, they... Yeah, I've never questioned whether they're indigenous, but... There's also, as I've discussed elsewhere, there's the issue of the historical narrative of what Belizeans learn in school in terms of, for instance, when I was writing my dissertation and looking at the history of Belize, right, there's the whole notion of the Mopan and Kechemaya coming into Belize in the 1880s, right? And you had Dr. Wilk and others submitted affidavits, in, in essence, saying that the Mayans never really left the area, right? Because mm -hmm. our whole historical narrative is, of course, the caste war, you know, you first had the Ladino population coming into Belize as refugees, then uh, the Mayan population coming, right? Then on the west, you had, you, you have the Mayans coming from Guatemala. But in their affidavit in the court, um, indigeneity was sort of determined based on the affidavits of these professors um, and so on. But whether the professors say they're indigenous or not, it, it's sort of not. I don't want to really say contrast. There are questions because of these people reading books by Grant and Dobson, all the other historical texts, with the exception of the Schumann thirteen chapters, that you know essentially said the groups, those groups came after eighteen eighty, right? So what happens is it, it informs the thinking and informs my own thinking. One of the things that I sort of looked at when, and I do this with everything, my research, so I'm not too biased, is why did I arrive at a certain view of a situation? What in my past 
inform the views that I have or the conclusions that I make, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things, I mean, we come here and we learn about the history of the the Native Americans, right? And I concluded it was because my views about certain things is because of the history I learned at SJC, right, despite my sort of... Jerome, I don't mean to you know, cut, you, cut you off, but we only have less than... Uh, Less than a minute remaining, about 90, 80 seconds. No problem. So, uh, I want you to come. We, we're going to have to read this, brother. I tell you, two hours is not enough for the kind of you know, things that we're covering, brother. You know I mean? You know, uh, it's just mm-hmm. not enough. You know, when I brought on you, Richard Harrison, and Dr. Uh, I mean, Dr. Bova, it's just Dr. Leroy Almandaris. It, there's so much information, brother, you know, but um, I want to thank you because we're we, we, we really out of time, Jerome. We really, really think we're going to have to do this again. Yeah, we never really entertained. We never had the calls, but um, hopefully if those people are also on Facebook, they can send me a message. Yeah, they can. I'll see if I can answer on, on, their... On the blog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, as much as possible. Well, you were listening to Dr. Jerome Strine, and um, my name is Hubert Pipersberg, and we were discussing migration as it relates to Belize and the diaspora. We didn't do the subject justice only because we didn't have enough time. We ran out of time, as usual, and the time constraint. But I want to thank Dr. Strand for coming on and dedicating two hours out of his uh, busy schedule to, in, to entertain and educate us on, 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 on migration patterns and, and fallacies about migration. And I want to wish everybody out there do the right thing.